Our first reading this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, and I'll be reading the entire chapter from verses 1 through to 12. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground? He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. This is the word of the Lord. And we have a second reading. We're going to read from the Gospel of Mark, his version of the Passion, of the Crucifixion. So if you'd like to open up to Mark chapter 15, we're going to read from verses 21 to 41. A certain man from Cyrene... Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, when they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. 
those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified him, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. And with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching at a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. Well, I um, being a being a guest this morning, I'm not familiar with everyone yet and I don't know if you're here just visiting over Easter or or if you're new to Christianity but if if this is you then you're probably going to come across some pretty strange ideas um, and teachings at church and that's okay even us Christians who have been believers for a long time still find some ideas about Christianity strange let's start with a big one for example Christianity believes in one all-powerful Creator God. Not long ago, that wasn't strange. Now, today, that's a little bit strange. That there could be some divine being, free, larger than the universe he created, untamed, all-knowing and all-powerful and fully complete in himself. What mind can fathom this? Who are we that such a God should consider us, the psalmist says. Good question. What's another strange thing you might hear at Easter time? Well, it's a bit strange then that this God would then choose to become a human being. That's weird. That's, that's not an easy idea to swallow. What divine, almighty being would ever choose to diminish himself in this sort of way? I mean, if you're all of that, right, why would you choose to become so small and finite and limited and, and frail? But that's the story of Christmas, isn't it, which we celebrated just a few months ago. It's weird. It's strange. 
If you're a Christian and you've been one for a long time, I encourage you to cast your mind back to when you first heard these ideas. Another strange one. If all of this is true, assuming that it's all true, then why wouldn't this God become man, set himself up then as ruler of the whole world? Am I right? That's what the Greek gods always seem to want to do. And and that idea makes a bit more sense to us, doesn't it? Why? Why would he choose instead to live a life of relative obscurity and poverty? And stranger still then, why would he, after such a short life, allow himself to be tortured and killed in the most humiliating of ways for all to see? These are sensible questions and very logical. If you're here today and and you have these thoughts sort of buzzing around in the back of your minds, then you're not alone. Other faiths, other religions look at Christianity and they also ask the same questions of our faith. And even the writers of the Bible stood in awe of these things as they considered them. And Christian leaders and pastors have been trying to understand and explain them since the very first Christmases and and Easter's. And to explore the depths of these questions would demand far more than one 20-minute sermon. So for now, on Good Friday, as we look at the cross, allow me to zero in on just three, three primary truths that might at least begin to shed light on these things. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, these are the, these are the things we need to keep coming back to, aren't they? Three truths of the cross. First, our sin is extremely horrible. It's not a very nice way to start a sermon, is it? Our sins are extremely horrible. But it's the beginning. Second, God's love is extremely wonderful. And finally, Jesus' salvation is a free gift. Let me read a, a portion of the passage from Isaiah that was read out earlier um, this, eve- this morning. Excuse me. So from Isaiah chapter 53. If you've, got your, if you've got your Bibles open, feel free to turn with me. This is, this is an Easter prophecy. And Isaiah probably wrote about five to six hundred years before Jesus. And it's describing Jesus and the kind of death he would die. And most importantly, it tells us why. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 to 6. Who, have, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man, of, a man of sorrows and, and familiar with suffering. Like one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. This is the why. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. For we all like sheep have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. First truth, our sin is extremely horrible. The horror of sin is something that might be foreign to you, especially if you aren't a Christian or haven't been one for very long. Again, this is one of the tough things that you'll hear this weekend, and it's not a nice topic, but it's central to Easter, isn't it? It's it's central to Christianity. So we don't look at at it, um, excuse me, so if, if we don't look at it, we, we never really understand God. We never really understand the cross. We never really understand ourselves. And so we look back to the opening chapters of the Bible, the book of Genesis, and we're told that God created all things. And he created it perfectly, and he named it to be perfect, including us, including the, the world we live in. But sadly, mankind chose to reject God what did we want instead? We, we didn't want to have to rely on him for good things. We didn't want to have to rely on him to be happy. Does that sound like you? Does that sound like people you know? We wanted our independence. We wanted our autonomy. And we're the same today, aren't we? Sure, Genesis tells us that Satan, you know, God's enemy was involved. He tempted, he seduced us. But the responsibility, the choice is on us. In spurning God, we went our own way, which is really to say we went, we went Satan's way, and we chained ourselves to him, and, and we've been led away by him ever since. You know, we're, we're not wise creatures. We're, 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 we're manipulated creatures. In rejecting the one who is wholly good, we reject goodness itself. We reject the right for the wrong. We reject, you know, the light for the dark. We reject the truth for a lie. We reject the good for the bad. And so we do bad things. This part isn't strange, is it? This part makes sense to us all. We see it all around us. Much, as, much of what we take for granted in society is a result of this choice, isn't it? You know, a, a promise isn't enough anymore. We need a contract. Doors aren't enough anymore. We need to lock and bolt them. The payment of fines isn't enough. We need tickets to be issued and receipts to be given. Law and order are not enough. We need the police to enforce them. All of this due to our sin. We can't trust each other. We need protection from each other. And this isn't just true for enemies or strangers, is it? How many of us, the people that we hurt the most, are those that we love? Our sin is extremely horrible. And I think you'll agree the issues that I've just mentioned aren't even scratching the surface of our corruption. If this is so, then how does a holy, good God respond? What does, what does an artist do to a piece of art that's been irreparably, irreparably damaged? What does the town council do when a building has become a hazard? 
Or perhaps a more appropriate illustration might be to ask, how does a good parent respond when their child is ignoring them and hurting others? There are consequences to our actions, aren't there? And to show us exactly how horrible our sin is, the Bible tells us that the consequences of sin is death. Death. Not just physical, but spiritual. Not just for this life, but for eternity. In our society, few countries still exercise the death penalty. And the places that do reserve it for you know, the most heinous of crimes, serial killers, terrorists, rapists. But for most of human history, we have acknowledged that there are some things that we do to each other that demand nothing less than death. It's it's quite the ominous outset, isn't it? A bleak tone for the bleak reality before God. Our sin is extremely horrible. The great English pastor John Stott once wrote, before we begin to see the cross as something done for us, we need to see the cross as something done by us. This is the the dark backdrop to Christmas. This is the why of Easter. This is why the cross was necessary. And And though it's bleak, it makes our second point all the more incredible, doesn't it? That God's love is extremely wonderful. This, in many ways, is the answer to the questions that we raised at the beginning of the, of the message. Why would an almighty God humble himself so much as Jesus did? I'm guessing most of us would be familiar with the most famous verse of the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. It's a wonderful verse. It makes sense that it's the most famous. The following verse, verse 17, completes this idea. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. Why would the creator, or excuse me, what would the creator do in response to the rebellion and evil of his creation? Here's a weird one. As strange as it is beautiful. He would sacrifice himself to save us. To win us back. He would do battle for his most cherished creatures. He came because he didn't want to destroy us. He didn't want to hand out the death penalty. He, he, he didn't come to set himself up to rule us. Rather, he, his first coming, it was, it was to save us. And how would he do this? How would he, how does becoming a man help? Well, if according to God's law, the penalty for sin is death, and if he wasn't going to pass the ju- that judgment upon us, then to ma- maintain his, his justness, Someone else was going to have to die in our place. 
in the lead up to his crucifixion, Jesus began teaching his disciples that he must suffer, must suffer. You know, he's telling them that he was planning to die. But it's one thing if Jesus had said, I will fight and be defeated. It's another thing for him to say, this is why I came. I intend to die. I must suffer. He's saying, I didn't come to live. I came to die. I'm not here to take power, but to lose it. I'm not here to to rule. I'm here to serve. And sure, he did wonderful things in his life. You know, even, even the historians of his day, you know, outside of the Bible, like, like Josephus, reported that Jesus, you know, the historical person, was a worker of great miracles. Now, he healed the blind. He raised another from the dead. He spoke words that cured diseases and tamed storms. But while he did all these things, they weren't the reason he came. There's a story that the Gospel of Mark tells of a paralytic that was brought to Jesus lying on a stretcher. Jesus saw this man. He knew what this man wanted, just like any of us would know. It was plain for all to see he wanted to walk again. He wanted freedom again. He wanted his life back again. So his friends bring him to the miracle worker. But do you remember what Jesus said to him? He says, your sins are forgiven. That's a strange one. Jesus looked at the man lying there. He saw his paralysis. He knew what the man so desperately wanted. But remember, Jesus is also God. And wherever Jesus looked in this fallen world, he saw the deeper need. Beyond our wants, beyond our wishes, beyond what we'd like, he saw through those things to the heart of our brokenness, and he saw sin, our sin hanging over us like, a, like, like, like the headman's axe. Our sin corrupting us and causing us to hurt others and hurt ourselves, causing us to be broken off from the eternal God, our creator. And Jesus would say later in the same story, you know, I've not come to save righteous, but sinners. Not that there's anyone who's righteous, but you know, you have to be willing to acknowledge our sin to accept help, I guess. What do you think your need is today, this Good Friday? I'm sure you, like me, have a whole list of practical needs you'd like to bring before an all-powerful God who wants to help. But he sees our deeper need. He sees us under the death penalty. And he wants to take our place there. Well, Jesus did end up healing the paralyzed man physically as well, but his point was made. Our sin is extremely horrible. And God needed to act. But because God loved us so, rather than condemn us outright, he entered into the world himself and lived among us. And in doing so, 
he would be in the position to forgive us. How? Being God, he was able to live the perfect life that we couldn't live. Being human, he could go to the cross and was able to die. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He went to the cross to die our death in our place. Jesus would be our substitute under the headman's axe. He was hung in our place. He sat in the electric chair instead of us. He took the death sentence that we deserved. Which brings us to the third point, third truth about the cross. Christ's salvation is a free gift. Did we deserve it? No. We deserved the judgment. Had, had we done anything to somehow earn it? We didn't even want Jesus to come. We rejected him and killed him. No, we didn't do anything to deserve it, to earn it. A ruined painting can't fix itself. A derelict house can't straighten its own walls and strengthen its own roof. This was grace. An overflow of love for doomed creatures who couldn't save themselves. And it was his plan, make no mistake, not the Jews. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't Pilate's. The Old Testament, as we've seen from our reading this morning, is full of examples of God telling his people through his prophets time and again that a Savior was coming and that he would die in order to pay the debt that we owed. In this way, the, the whole Bible is about Jesus, right? The Old Testament pointing to Jesus, straining toward Jesus, the Gospels celebrating Jesus and his life, and the New Testament pointing back to him saying, this is our hope, this is our hope, this is our hope. Jesus, God becoming man, not to condemn the world, but to save those who would respond by dying on the cross. It was always his plan. Every Christian holds these two realities to be true about Jesus on the cross. We say in the, in the same breath, I did it, my sin held him there, and also he did it, his love took him there. The New Testament tells us that it was while we were still sinners that Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. It's no wonder that one of the great hymns of Christianity rings out amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Now, the, the very definition of grace is that it can't be earned. The very different definition of it means that we weren't deserving of it. It's a free gift. It can only be given. And the Easter story presents us with a decision to make. I don't know if there's any here who haven't made that decision yet. The Christian message is simple. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've been living for, God sees you. God knows you. And God is for you. Though our sins are extremely horrible, his love is extremely wonderful. He knows your deeper need. And in the cross, he offers us a free gift 
of grace and forgiveness and a second chance for the thousandth time. If you're not yet a Christian, this is the decision laid before you. Will you give Easter its merit? Will you listen and accept the story of the cross and Christ? Or will you reject it? This is the most important decision you will ever make. Either you die for your sins or Jesus does. God invites us to accept his grace. He says through the prophet Isaiah in another place, he says, come, let's settle the matter. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. And again, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What kind of rest? Rest from guilt. Relief from shame. An end to the rat race of trying to be good enough, of trying to earn your way. A refuge from the fear, the whispering fear of death and what it may bring. Good Friday and the cross are only half of the Easter story. Good Friday is about death, Jesus meeting us where our need is, but Sunday's coming, isn't it? The empty tomb completes the celebration. Indeed, we can only celebrate because of the empty tomb. Without the resurrection, the cross would be a bitter end to a bleak story. But we have Easter Sunday. It's the death blow of death, and so Friday is indeed good. What will you do with the knowledge of the Easter story? If you are just visiting, if you haven't made your decision yet, and you'd like to know more, I'm going to be right up the front here and would love to speak to you afterwards and can point you in the direction of the elders here who would be able to uh, minister to you and answer questions and, dis and talk with you. And, and you're not bothering us, by the way. Even if you are, ha are a Christian and you want to just talk this through a bit more, you're not bothering us. This is our favorite topic. This is why we do what we do. Um, so don't be shy. And do come back on Easter Sunday. Do come back on Sunday and hear the rest of the story. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we gather together this Good Friday, would you remind us? Would you teach us wonderful things about your cross? Would you use this Good Friday to do some work in us? For those of us who haven't yet accepted you as Lord, would you speak to us? Would you introduce yourself to us? And would you change us forever?
And for those of us who have been Christians for a little while or a long while, Lord Jesus, would you come to us? And would you speak to us? And would you remind us of your great love? In Jesus' name we pray.